0: All right, well, good to see you on this beautiful Wednesday evening. Let's make our way to Philippians. As uh, we head towards Philippians in your Bibles, uh, let me just mention that Friday evening, so two days from now, a friend of ours and a ministry we support, Daniel Messiah, is going to be here with Open the Gates Ministries. uh, Friday evening at 7 uh, Daniel is a uh, was a Muslim, was born Muhammad Camel until a radical transformation and uh, interaction he had with the Holy Spirit. And he became a Christian in Egypt uh, where it is actually illegal to convert from uh, Islam to Christianity. And so as a result, Daniel was thrown in prison, spent nine months in solitary confinement. So that's, there's some kind of story that Daniel's got that he's going to share with us, uh, talk about God's faithfulness through his life and uh, what it's looked like, and his love for uh, the nation of Islam and, and people that truly God loves. And so if you want to come out on a Friday night, you don't have anything else going on, you want to invite people to that, uh, we're going to have dinner with Daniel downstairs at 5.30. We'll be up here at 7, uh, getting to hear from him as he gives an update and shares his story, and it is an amazing story. Uh, all that said, there are some information back on the back table, so on your way out, if there's any of that you'd like to take, um, the books I think are $10, so I put some envelopes there. If you want a book, you can slide that in there and just drop it in the uh, boxes in the back, and we'll make sure Daniel gets that. But either way, if 10 bucks is a problem, just take a book, and we won't worry about it. So at the end of the day, I just want you to have the material, and uh, we want to support Daniel when he's here uh, on Friday. All right. Philippians is where we're going to be headed this evening. But as we get ready to head to uh, the letter to the Philippians, what I want to do is give you a little bit of a backstory. How uh, do we look at this letter? What is the theme of the letter to begin with? And the theme of the letter to the Philippians is one very simple word. It is the word joy, uh, J-O-Y. This is the theme to the letter. And in fact, uh, 16 times in this small four-chapter epistle Paul is going to use the word joy to talk about the Philippians, which is pretty amazing because as Paul writes this letter, uh, he is actually located in prison. Paul finds himself in prison as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. This is one of four letters in our New Testament known as the prison epistles. Uh, This letter along with Ephesians, Colossians and the letter he writes to Philemon are the four books that were written around 62 AD while uh, Paul was in a Roman prison awaiting trial before Caesar Nero and so we see Paul writing this letter from a spot that you would think how can you write a joyful letter in these circumstances and yet what we're gonna find as we go through the letter is that Paul's joy was not rooted in his earthly circumstance His circumstances did not define his joy that he has. And so what he knew, Paul knows without a shadow of a doubt, is that Jesus is bigger than any of his circumstances. That despite how it looks from the outside, it was not going to define him. But as we look at this letter, really to understand how we get to this point, we find the church Of Philippi being planted in Acts chapter 16. And so I'm going to take a quick 30,000 foot view of Acts chapter 16 to give us an understanding of how the church began in Philippi. And so this church really started off with the Apostle Paul and his uh, companions desiring to go to Asia Minor. Uh, Paul wanted to go to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, This is the region that we think of uh, with Ephesus or with the Galatia region. This is where Paul wanted to go and wanted to take the gospel. And yet what we're told in Acts 16 is the Holy Spirit forbid him. We don't know exactly what that looked like other than possibly Paul was very, very sick. He wasn't able to travel. The Holy Spirit uh, wiped him out and he's just stuck uh, wondering what God has for him. And what we find is as he's there in that spot where he's down and out, not able to travel, uh, God gives him a vision. And in this vision, he sees a man from Macedonia, and the man is calling out, crying to him, come over and share the gospel, share the good news with us in Macedonia. And so the Apostle Paul takes this direction, and he sees his circumstances, and so he tells the boys, look, it's time to load it up. We're going to head not to Asia Minor, not to Turkey like we planned, but instead we're going to Macedonia, which is really northern Greece on our maps. And so they pack everything up, they make their way to this region of Macedonia, and the most prominent city in the region is, of course, the city of Philippi. And so the Apostle Paul and Silas, they go to Philippi, and they do what Paul did every time. They would head into a new town, and they would look for the synagogue. Because here you find Jewish men who had the Word of God. The men and women would gather in the synagogue, they would discuss the Word of God, and it's here that Paul could reason with them. And so as Paul would make his way to the synagogue, what he would find in Philippi is there was no synagogue. It only took 10 Jewish men in a city to form a synagogue, and yet as Paul arrives in Philippi, there's no synagogue. And so instead of going to the synagogue, they make their way down to the riverbank, which is the other place that Jews would congregate in order to worship Yahweh, to have a a service, if you will. And so as Paul and Silas make their way to the riverbank, what they find there is not a gathering of men, but in fact a gathering of women a group of ladies gather together there to worship God. And and one of the most prominent ladies in the group is a lady named Lydia. And we're told Lydia was from the area of Thyatira. And so as Paul gathers there, as he, he begins to greet the ladies and talk to them and share openly the gospel, what happens is, you can guess, they become believers in Jesus as the Christ. They're baptized right there at the river, and Lydia is excited. She wants Paul to speak to her entire household so that they can be saved. And interestingly enough, um, Lydia, who was not from Philippi, she was from Thyatira. And if you had an ancient map, what you'd find is Thyatira was located right in the heart of, you guessed it, uh, Asia Minor. The very place Paul wanted to go. And yet God, through circumstances, was actually lining things up so that the gospel could go to the place that Paul had on his heart. And I share that to say that oftentimes God redirects us. He uses circumstances to change direction in our life because he's got a a better plan. He knows how these things need to go together. And so Paul shares the gospel with these ladies. They receive the gospel. He then leaves from there and makes his way into Philippi uh, with Silas. And as they're making their way, no doubt sharing the gospel as they went, uh, a little girl, a Jewish slave girl... Uh, begins to follow them. And this slave girl begins to cry out. uh, She is actually demon-possessed, and yet as a little demon-possessed girl, she cries this out in verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So here's a demon-possessed girl crying out a very real truth that these men were servants of the Most High God showing them the way of salvation. And yet, she didn't just uh, cry this out for a few minutes, or uh, even uh, uh, a few hours. She was crying this out, following them around for days. Days, she's yelling at people. These men are servants of the Most High God. And finally, Paul had had enough. I mean, he what Scripture tells us is he was greatly annoyed. He's like, I can't take it. For another second, he turns around to this girl and he casts the demon out in the name of Jesus and the demon leaves the girl. And you would think, wow, let's celebrate. This girl's been saved, delivered from the demon. Um, the issue was, uh, this girl was a slave and her owners were using the demon that was in her to actually force her to be a fortune teller. And so their little profit center had just been ruined. Now you can imagine how these Romans who owned this girl took Paul ruining their little prophet center, they get a hold of Paul and Silas, they bring them right to the Roman officials, and they demand that these men be thrown in jail. And so, we find that uh, Paul and Silas are not only thrown in jail, but actually beaten, uh, stripped of their clothes, and then as they're placed in a Philippian jail, uh, they put their legs in stocks. And for those of you that don't know what that looks like, um, to be uh, placed in stocks, what they would do is they would sit you down with your fanny on the floor. Uh, they would spread your legs out to the point to where you get one of those hip pointers, you know, you get that cramp, and just, oh, and then they would lock your feet in that position. Naked, on a floor, uh, just you and your thoughts in the dark. You can imagine, this is now the scene after Paul uh, did this wonderful thing for this young girl. I mean, he intended to do well, and yet he ends up in that spot, and you have to wonder, he must be crying out like, God, are you even with me at this point in time? I've done what you've asked me to do, but Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't cry out to the Lord, God, are you with me? But instead, he and Silas, after being beaten with their feet put in stocks, uh, what we're told is around midnight they're singing praises and praying to the Lord. I am so convicted by that. Because if I'm in that spot, I'm crying out to God for all kinds of things, but I'm going to struggle to praise. I'm going to struggle to sing joyfully to the Lord. And yet what we're told is as they're singing joyful praises to the Lord, that the ground shakes. There's a tremendous earthquake in this Philippian jail. And what happens is the The stocks fall off their feet, the prison doors fly wide open. And as the doors fly open, the the Roman guard that's there, he draws his sword to do the only thing he would have known to do, and that would be take his own life. Because according to the Roman law, if you lose a prisoner, you have to then suffer whatever fate to pay the price for whatever crimes they were due. And so for this entire prison, no doubt they're going to be running off. This guy draws his sword to take his own life, and yet what he hears from the Apostle Paul is, don't take your life, we're all still here. The guard had to have been shocked. He calls for the lights to be turned on. Let me see what's going on here. He rushes in, and what he finds is all the prisoners who should have, by all rights, run off, um, they're still standing there. And as the man approaches the Apostle Paul, this is what he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He cries out, Well, I don't know what's happened here, but what do I have to do to know this God of yours? Now, this would have been the man that just beat the Apostle Paul and Silas and placed them in stocks. And yet, what Paul does is he looks at him and says, I told you. No, he leads him to the Lord. He proceeds to not only baptize this man, but then turn around and baptize his entire family. The man brings Paul and Silas out of the jail, uh, home with him, uh, cleans him up, and there we have the beginnings of the church in Philippi, which started with essentially a lady's small group, a little uh, demon-possessed Jewish girl, uh, and a uh, Roman soldier with anger issues. Like This is the beginnings of the church. There's no church planner in his right mind saying, this is how you should start a church. And yet, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is how the church was born in Philippi, through songs of praise. And so we see this joyful church now coming out of these unlikely circumstances in the midst of praise. All that leads us to verse 1 where we read that Paul and Timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So Paul, writing to the leaders of the church in Philippi, refers to himself not as a prisoner of man, even though, remember, Paul's circumstances are he is a prisoner awaiting a a sentencing before Caesar Nero. But he doesn't proclaim, I'm a prisoner of man. He says, no, I'm a bondservant to Jesus. This this phrase, this idea of being a bondservant was something interesting because uh, what we find is that for a bondservant, this would have been a person who was previously a slave. Previously it had all kinds of debts that they could not pay, and so they went into a life of servanthood, of servitude. And after their debts were finally paid, they were allowed to be released, to go free. But upon looking back at things and thinking, you know, uh, my master took really good care of me. I never worried about a meal. I always had a roof over my head. And I'm going to make a decision on my own free will. Even though my debts are paid, I'm going to intentionally be a free will bond servant. I'm going to serve him the rest of my life. And what we find is this is Paul saying, I am a free will bond servant, a doulos in the Greek. I'm serving willfully Jesus who by the way paid all my debts. Colossians 2:14 says that the handwriting of requirements uh, that was against us that was contrary to us it, it was a whole list of debts that we could not pay. And yet what Jesus states in John chapter 19 verse 30 with his final breath on the cross is to telestai, paid in full. And so Jesus paying all our debts wiping out the handwriting requirements, nailing them to the cross, bearing them for all of eternity, now we have this ability to willfully enter into a life of being a free will bondservant. And this is what Paul is saying. We are free will bondservants of Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 2 and says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a typical Pauline greeting. When we read Letters from Paul, he starts them all saying grace and peace to you. But you'll notice when you go through these letters, they're always in that order. He never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace, and that's intentional. And and when we look at this uh, spiritually, what you find is if you desire to know the peace of God, you must first experience the grace of God. You must accept His grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, if you desire to know His peace. And similarly, in your life, in your relationships with the people that that you do life with, if you desire to know peace, you must also be willing to give grace, which preaches a whole lot better than what it actually lives, doesn't it? Because invariably, the people we have to give grace to, they don't deserve it. They don't. It's like, why should I give that person grace? They've hurt me. They don't deserve this. And yet, that's the very definition of grace. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. What we receive from Jesus is heaven. You know what we don't deserve? Heaven. What we actually deserve is hell and death. But by His grace, He gives us eternal life with Him. And so, in our relationships, if we desire to have peace, we must be willing to give. Grace when I, I remember sharing that on a Wednesday night uh, years ago in Farmington, Missouri, and there was a dad that came forward and uh, he had a young family and he just had tears in his eyes, and he said, "That's why I don't have any peace. I'm not willing to give grace to the people in my house. I'm not even willing to give myself grace. And so we were able to talk through that. If, if you're in a spot where you want and desire peace, It begins first with grace. Now, continuing in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so Paul is recollecting. He's thinking back to this unlikely beginning of this church, and he's saying, I'm I'm thankful for, for you all. I'm thinking about all the circumstances, all the things that went into him even arriving in Philippi in the first place. It was never his plan to go there, remember. And so that reminds me of Psalm 37 verse 23, which says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But the Desiring to do well, it might not look like the path we thought we were going to take. It might not be a direct line from point A to point B, but for the man who desires to do good, the Lord actually directs His way, directs His path. And then what we find is these stories that are our lives, I mean, even Hollyweird can't write these things, right? Like, like you can't make this stuff up. Like, how did all that happen? I don't know. It had to be God. It's the only thing that makes sense. Paul continues here in verse 6 with one of my favorite verses in Philippians 1. He says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Be confident that God is up to good things in your life. Even if you can't see it. Even if you don't understand it. I mean, here's the reality. The fact that you all are here on a Wednesday night, that's miraculous. In the words of Buddy the Elf, that's shocking. Right? That's shocking that we're actually here together on a Wednesday night. There's more people here than we're here at our first service three years ago. So that's that's shocking. That's encouraging. right? And so what we find is, um, by faith, Jesus is the one that actually uh, gives us the faith, and then he's the one that actually completes the work. Did you, did you catch that? Here in verse 6 it says that he who has begun a good work will complete it. It doesn't say that he begins it and then you complete it. It says he began it and then he will complete it. He's the one that we're to have faith in all along. In Second in Timothy, this is what Paul would write right before he would actually be beheaded. The second time he appeared before Caesar Nero, he says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That even when we lack faith, even when we don't know how God are you ever going to complete this thing, He remains faithful. Even when we lack faith, He began a good work. He is going to complete it. Now back to Philippians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense, in confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, and all all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So as Paul is communicating about them, he's communicating his affection for them. As Paul is is speaking about them, notice with me, what he says is, I have uh, you all not on my nerves, but you are all on my heart. That's important to note. As he's thinking back about them, he's not annoyed with them. He's able to write this love letter to them because that's what's in his heart. But the issue we have is, what do we do with the person that's just annoying? Like they're driving me crazy. They're annoying me. What Paul is suggesting here is this very simple thing. Pray for them. When that person is getting on your nerves, but you know they should be on your heart, um, pray for them. Because the, the reality is spiritually, you cannot stay mad at someone that you pray with or for consistently. This is why in, in any marriage counseling, I suggest uh, to pray with your spouse. And for my wife and I, it was only a few years ago that we started to pray together. And let me tell you, it was weird. So Weird. Uh, way weirder than our first kiss. It's like, I don't know, do I go this way? Where's my, eh, I'm not sure how this works. And awkward and clunky, and none of it made sense. And yet, what I knew is, if we prayed together, um, she couldn't stay mad at me. <laughs> right? So, and guys, here's the truth. Like, we're going to jack this thing up. It's guaranteed. We are going to mess it up every time. But one way to help smooth things out is to to pray with one another, no matter how difficult it might be. And so for those people in our lives that get on our nerves, the recommendation there is to pray with or at the very least pray for them. Now continuing in verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. And so Paul's commending them he's saying look you're doing a great job of loving but you need to hone it in a little bit nobody needs the sloppy agape you know a great job loving one another but get the thing real then do it as you love we don't want to be hypocritical we want you to love with knowledge and discernment to understand there there should be a desire for excellence to actually play out you should be sincere with your love, the word in the Greek uh, "sinecera" it's a compound word. It, it literally means without wax. And so, for sculptors in that day, when they would make a beautiful sculpture, if they made a little boo-boo, you know, maybe they knocked the nose off this beautiful marble sculpture, the less scrupulous ones they would go, you know, I could probably use some of that Greek bondo. I could just put a little bondo on it, uh, rub it out. It's going to look just like wax, uh, just like marble, until you put it out by the pool, right? You bought this expensive. A piece You put it out by the pool, the sun hits it, and the whole nose melts off. And so you know you've been had because the person wasn't sincere. They didn't have integrity. They had wax in the sculpture. And what God is communicating through the pen of Paul is we're to be people that are without wax, to be sincere, to be straightforward. Even if it means showing off our flaws that we'd rather rub some bondo on and not show off, we should be people that desire excellence in ourselves, and in one another. But it's important to note, as we desire excellence in others, it should first start uh, right here. And that we shouldn't uh, be a bunch of three-headed sin sniffers looking at just, I think I smell some sin on you. That's the problem right there. We shouldn't be and operate like that. We should desire, though, from a place of love for each other to be excellent, to say truthful things in love. Look, I've seen this in your life. I want to address it with you. I want to come alongside you as you work that out. And so Paul's commending them and trying to help direct them. He continues in verse 11 saying, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so as he's commending them, he says something which leads me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I'm going to go there really quickly. I know you guys came out on a Wednesday night hoping for Deuteronomy like, I am going to go to church. I hope he reads out of Deuteronomy tonight. Yes, you're there. Chapter 20, verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war against you until you subdue it. What in the world? Here's the spiritual uh, connection that I want to make with that. God was giving instruction to them that when they went to war to take a city that God was going to win the victory in. They weren't to just wield an axe and cut down any tree they came across. Because if you cut down all the fruit trees, when you take over the city, what are you going to eat? What are you going to feed yourself with? Where's the sustenance? The, The value is in the ability to go out. There's the pear tree and the apple tree and the peach tree. My goodness, praise the Lord, we've taken this thing over. Look how fruitful the land is. But when you wield the axe carelessly, you'll accidentally cut down and damage the very thing that you would have fed yourself with, you see. And the same is true for us spiritually. That when we go to help one another or even uh, take a land in our own life, if we're not careful, if we go to swing in the axe around like a bunch of crazy people, we're liable to cut down the very fruit trees that we're going to need to sustain a- ourselves with in the days to come. And so what happens is many times uh, God redeems the fruit trees in our life. Pastor Mike years ago shared with me this that the very things that used to get you in trouble, when those are the things are subjected to the Lord, those are actually gifts that He's going to use for His glory. And so the humor, or maybe it's a wit, or maybe it's a quick comeback, but it's done in a way that is tasteful and that is actually subjected to God, it can be the very thing that makes you attractive to people, makes you a part of God's master plan. And so God's not trying to whitewash everything and not make us us, you see. But he wants us to be fruitful. And so there's intentionality behind sharing with one another and coming alongside one another uh, with an axe. Be careful with the axe. Now, back to Philippians. Verse 12 says this, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that Uh, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the world, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so what we find is Paul actually reflecting upon his chains, the things that have bound him. And what he's saying is these are not really chains. These are actually ways to be able to Minister to others. As the Apostle Paul, if I can get the slide back, there you go. As the Apostle Paul was there chained to a Roman guard, you know what he had? A captive audience. That person was going to get the gospel whether they like it or not. I mean, Paul's like, you're chained to me, brother. You're going to hear this until your shift is up. And guess what? When a new one comes on to be chained to me, he's going to get the gospel too. And so many times what God wants to communicate to us is what's in your hand? Where is he Put you. For Moses, it was the staff, right? As God called Moses into service to him, he said, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses wanted to do anything but go back into Egypt and bring the people out from Pharaoh. And yet, the very staff that was in his hand is what God used to part the waters of the Red Sea. The very staff in his hand is what God used to bring forth water from the rock to feed the people. The very sling that was in the hand of David as a young shepherd boy that he used to protect the sheep is the thing God used to take down a giant. And here we find the very chains that are on the Apostle Paul is the thing he uses for the furtherance of the gospel. Now it looks better when it's a cool staff or when it's an awesome slingshot and you're like a sniper. It looks a little different when it's chains on your hands or on your feet. But here's the reality in your life. Whatever spot he's got you in, He's going to use those things that otherwise seem like they're shackling you. It's maybe seems like it's got you chained down, but God knows exactly where He's got you, and He also knows people are always watching. There are always people watching you, whether you like it or not. They're peering into your life, and they're wondering how you're doing what you're doing. As God changes you, they're wondering how is it you're not more upset, more depressed, more bothered? How How is all this coming together? And what we find is, God is allowing these things in our life not to crush us, but to actually bring others to his truth and others to his knowledge. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God always provides a way out so that when others look into our life they're actually encouraged. And so here what Paul's saying is these chains that seem depressing they're actually encouraging others that look into my life and go if Paul can share the gospel with Roman guards chained to him then who am I to not share the gospel? I can surely go out and share. Now Continuing in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. And so there are some that were preaching a gospel of legalism and rules, and here's the issue with all the rules and all the legalistic stuff that gets layered on us. Uh, none of us can actually keep all the rules. It, it just becomes a, a burden. They become chains. If you're if you're trying to work at your way to heaven, uh, you're going to have one hell of a time working your way to heaven. That's how it's going to feel. You're going to feel like you're constantly trying to earn God's love, earn His respect, and it's never going to be enough. It's by grace that you're saved, though, through faith in Jesus. And so there's freedom in that. What Paul's saying is there's some that are preaching legalism, there's others that are preaching from their own popularity or political gain, but, but amazingly, and this is hard to wrap my brain around, to be honest, And what Paul's saying is even for those that are sharing the gospel, the actual doctrine, the the true gospel of Jesus Christ, Him and Him crucified, Him and Him resurrected by grace through faith, as they're preaching that, even if it's done with bad motives and bad intentions, what Paul says is, at least the gospel's going out. (laughs) That's that's Paul's take. And, And you think about that and how often we get Upset or offended because this church over here is not doing it the way we're doing it. they got a fog machine. The music's too loud. They're singing out of hymnals. At least our preacher's preaching the word from a cool swivel stool. We're doing it right. But the reality is, if the gospel's going forth, and it's, it's the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, then they're, they're making headway for the kingdom. We need to quit picking on one another. That's what Paul is trying to say. Find common ground. And in that, we can rejoice that the gospel is being shared. Now, all this to give a practical example. Um, I get asked a lot about the show The Chosen. You know, what do I think of it? And what are my views? And what are, what about all the people behind the scenes? And, and all this. And, and what I will say is I'm going to avoid all the political stuff. And I'm going to tell you uh, where I landed this week considering it is uh, in it at the movie theater, uh, the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. And so whether you like how they go about it, or whether you like whether people are making money behind the scenes, or what whoever all the folks are that are putting it together, what I know is uh, in a day and age when you hear the words Jesus Christ on a big screen, it's usually them taking it in vain. And this spot, is actually being promoted. And so the name of Jesus is going forth. And and for what Paul's communicating here, uh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed. Now, to verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul making one of the biggest points and statements in this entire first chapter. What he is saying is to live is to share the gospel, but to die is actually gain. And so often we overcomplicate everything. I mean, we overcomplicate we over rationalize we've got endless scenarios what if this and what if that and what if that doesn't happen what if this does happen and here's what Paul boils it all down to um, if I live another day then I get another day to share the gospel with people and if I get called to go home tomorrow then praise the Lord I win you know to, to live is Christ to die I'm with Jesus like it, if this is as bad as it gets that's a pretty good deal. Right? And so Paul's communicating to this, to them, because uh, just like us, there's this desire to succeed in this life, to do more, to get more, to have more. But victory in our flesh is so fleeting. It never lasts. There's never enough of any of it. In fact, in just a couple days, I shared with you on Sunday, you know, we're going to have the Super Bowl, and there's going to be two teams, and they've worked all season, and one of them's going to win, and the other one's going to be a loser. Right? After all that hard work, they're going to be a loser. But even for the team that wins and they've got the the trophy held up and the confetti and the champagne and it's all wonderful and I'm going to Disney World in just a few days, they're going to be 0-0 as the record. (laughs) They're right back in training camp. They're trying all over again because it's never, ever enough. And yet, if we can subscribe to what Paul is saying, to live is to share the gospel to die is actually a gain because I get to go be with Jesus then the goal becomes when i stand before him i want to hear these words from matthew chapter 25 well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful in a few things i'm now going to make you ruler over many things enter into the joy of the lord i mean what a wonderful thing to hear well done good and faithful Servant, that feels like an eternal promise I can hang on to. Now, verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul saying, I, I know you need me here. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me, for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to see you again. Here's what Paul's communicating. Uh, for me to be here means me to grow you as disciples. And this is really the plan of salvation. We, we receive Jesus, He comes into our heart, and the reality is for each of us, as you receive Him, it would be far better for it to be, boom, I'm with Him. That's it. And yet, He leaves us here. He leaves us here so that we can share what God's done in our life and that we can make more disciples. Not that we can continue to hang out here and and sin more. That's not that's not God's plan. God's plan is for us to to share the gospel and to make disciples. And as we do, we get to share a part of our story with others. And these stories are are powerful. I want to encourage you. Don't be afraid to share what God's done in your life. Don't be afraid to share your testimony with a world that's lost. Now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says this And they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That the saints overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony. This is how powerful your story is. And it's really not actually your story at all, it's actually his story. It's what He's done in your life. It, it, it can overcome the very prince of darkness. And so we have this opportunity to share with a world that is lost. Now, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of God. Of the gospel what Paul cared about in their lives more than anything else was unity as a church this is what he desired for them in Philippi was for them to be unified even more than his own well-being I'm not worried about me I want you to be unified and as we think about the time we spent almost all of last year in Corinthians what was Paul's biggest concern in 1st Corinthians about them it was that they were unified Now, as a church, they were tore up from the floor up. I mean, some dude's sleeping with his stepmom. you got people drunk in the communion line. I mean, that's a jacked up church. And yet, as Paul begins the letter, he says, I'm really caring about your unity. That's what I'm worried about. And So what I wanted to share with you in that is that that we can mess up all kinds of things as a church. We We can do all kinds of... The things that maybe people would look at and go, I don't know if that was right or that was right, but if we do it all with a spirit that is unified, a church that is unified has the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit unifies. When you see churches that are broken apart and damaged and fractured, it's because the spirit has left the building. And so the real measure of success for a church shouldn't be the number of people that come out on a Wednesday night The number of people that come out on a Sunday morning. It's really, is there unity there? If there is unity present, then that means the Spirit is present. And no matter what it looks like to the outside world, that is a success. Now Paul continues in verse 28. and says, "...and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you salvation." And that from God. As you press into Jesus, it's important to understand, attacks are going to come. This might not be uplifting on a Wednesday night, but this is the truth. If if you press into Christ, you're going to be attacked spiritually. The enemy's going to come after you. He had no reason to come after you when you weren't following after Jesus. You were on his side. A house divided cannot stand. Satan's no dummy. He's not going to come after you if you're on his team. But when you begin to press into Jesus, the enemy is going to attack, and the people that are the naysayers are going to say, See, I told you not to follow after Jesus. What a waste of time. But what Paul's saying is, what you're actually showing, what the world sees as perdition, is actually, to you, salvation. It's proof that you are making changes, that God is up to things in your life. And he's going to continue in verse 29 to say this, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. The next hard pill to swallow is to suffer is actually a privilege. It's actually a privilege to suffer because you're not suffering just under yourself. You're actually suffering for Christ's sake. For Jesus, you get to partake in sufferings. Now, nobody's going to celebrate about suffering. That's just reality. None of us is probably going to go, woohoo, I'm getting to suffer again. And yet, There's a piece of us spiritually that have to understand that as we partake, as suffering happens, as trials happen and trials are going to come, Jesus didn't say they might. He said that when you experience tribulation, when it happens and it's going to happen, you're actually partaking with Jesus and it gives us an opportunity to show Him our affection as we endure. Even as we're limping along even as we're barely able to drag ourselves along to the next day we can say lord we love you paul continues here and wraps up this chapter and says having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me for trials in our life they they seem to do one of four things they're either uh, given to us by god or allowed by god for our uh, correction for our direction, uh, for our protection, or for our perfection. You don't have to remember all that. Because for the longest time, I wondered as a trial would happen, and it felt like it was heavy. I'm like, God, is this for my correction? Is this your redirection? Is this for, you know, are you trying to protect me from something? Are you trying to perfect me? Like, what? what trial is this? Like, what are you up to, Lord? And where I finally arrived at, Uh, In my walk, is the answer is yes. (laughs) That's it. It's never uh, one or the other. It's almost always yes and. It's for all those reasons. God is redirecting me. He's correcting something in my life. He is. He is trying to protect me from something. But beyond all that, what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is He is perfecting me. But the thing is, just like a precious metal, in order to be perfected. We have to be heated up. And as the heat happens, the impurities rise to the top, and all that junk gets scraped off, only for us to be heated up again for the impurities to rise to the top. But the promise that we can hold fast to is, if He's heating us up, it's because He's perfecting us for the day where we are made like Him, perfect for all of eternity. And so as you go through trials in your life, what I want to encourage you in is this. If He's allowed it, He's doing it for your good and for His glory every time. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for this book of joy. Lord, help us to be a people that are defined by joy. Lord, help us to be a people that are defined by unity and love. What you, what you told your disciples is this is how people will know that you're mine, by your love you have for one another. And so, Lord, help us to be a people that loves well, that are unified, but then also give us the courage to come alongside one another in our trials. It's so hard to talk about those things and not want to go down that road, and yet there is encouragement as we come alongside one another in our trials. Lord, help us as you're perfecting us. So very thankful that you heat us up, Lord. We're deemed worthy to partake, to fellowship in suffering. And so, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in all things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.